you have a Bible this morning, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 2. That is going to be on page 2 of the Pew Bible, the Black Pew Bible in front of you. John Piper, in a book called God is the Gospel, writes the following. The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Is quite the question to consider. But the reality is that there is no such thing as heaven without Christ. A heaven of our own making is surely hell. From the beginning, paradise was perfection. And there could be no perfect place without the presence and the reign of King Jesus. Last week, we looked at Moses' description of the seventh day, or what could be called the first Sabbath. Uh, This was the day upon which the the Jewish Sabbath in the Old Testament was founded, was commanded, was given as a sign to the people of Israel of their relationship between God and Israel. As the Bible unfolds, with the advent of Jesus, we find that Jesus fulfilled the law, including fulfilling the Sabbath. And therefore, Jesus is our Sabbath. Jesus is our rest. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. That's true. And whereas the Old Testament Sabbath Uh, is not binding on the Christian today, that the model of rest uh, is still present and still applicable and still relevant today. In the Old Testament, it was six days of work and then rest. By the time we get to the New Testament, it is in Christ we rest and from rest we work. A very different model. But in both cases, rest was and is an act of worship to stop, to cease from our work, to rest and to worship, to delight in God, to delight in God as our creator and to delight in God as our redeemer. After the resurrection of Jesus, we remember that believers began to worship not on the seventh day, but on the first day, on the first day of the week, Resurrection Sunday which came to be known as the Lord's Day. This was a day dedicated for worship. Now, there is not in the scriptures a prescribed way to exercise what we call the Lord's Day, other than to worship. What what can you do on the Lord's Day? What can you not do on the Lord's Day? Uh, The Old Testament had, had a lot of structure to the Sabbath. We don't have that same structure carried over into the New Testament. But what we do find is the principle of rest still applies. Christians from the dawn of the church have dedicated themselves to worship and to rest on the Lord's day. 
So it begs the question, how is it that we will worship? How is it that we will rest on this Lord's day? It's a worthwhile question for each of us to consider on our own, taking certain biblical principles into consideration. As verses 1 through 3 speak about the first Sabbath that we looked at last week, the rest of the chapter speaks about uh, several other firsts, among them the first man and the first garden. In our passage this morning, we will see how God related to man. We will see the beauty of the garden in Eden and the unity and closeness that God intended from the beginning. Look at verse 4 again with me as we see what Genesis 2 has to say about the first man. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. That, that first part there is called a, a toledot in the Hebrew language, or toledot. And it comes from the word generations. And you're going to see this a number of other times throughout the book of Genesis. In fact, there's some 10 or 11 times that this, this phrase is used. These are the generations. That word generation is the, where we get uh, the, the toledot or, or offspring. Um, it, it is a marker throughout the book of, of Genesis of a continuation of something, a, a furthering of the narrative. It marks a new section as it looks forward to what is to come, the unfolding narrative. And a lot of these times there's going to be a genealogy connected to this. Uh, right here we don't, have, we don't get a genealogy to start off, but in chapter 5 we will. We'll have a genealogy of a bunch of names, right? And we're going to wonder what, what are all these names about? And we'll talk about that as we get there. But, but this is how, how it, this next section begins. This is how we know that there is a new section is with this phrase, these are the generations of. And then we have this, this phrase here or this poetry uh, the, the, of the heavens and the earth. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord made the earth and the heavens. You can kind of see there's a, a structure there. Heaven, earth created, made earth, heaven. So you can see how it goes one way and then goes back the other way. That's intentionally done as a, a literary device. Verse 5 says, And no bush of the field was yet in the land, um, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. Uh, for the Lord God, and let's stop there. We saw that already in verse 4, the Lord God. In chapter 1, when God was referred to, he was referred to as God, just singularly the word God, which is the word Elohim. It's actually used 35 times in chapter 1. Now here in chapter 2, we're introduced to a new word, a new title, a new name, Lord. And actually, it's together, Lord God. The Lord here is the word Yahweh. So it's Yahweh Elohim is what we see here in chapter 2. And going forward, we're going to see this word Lord a lot uh, in, in the text. Lord God together as well. But the Lord is the, the covenant name of God who relates to and redeems his people. The Lord God. We see a combination here of creator and covenant redeemer. Which is, we remember the Sabbath. That's what the Sabbath was about. Remembering your creator. God is creator and God is redeemer. So here this name combines both of those things, the Lord God, the creator God, the creator, creator and the redeemer, the one who redeems, Yahweh, the Lord God. Verses 5 through 25, as we keep reading, describe the creation uh, again. 
Now, this is, is, is not another account or a, this is not a creation of an, let me just say that again. This is not an account of another creation. It is another account of creation, okay? So chapter two is not another creation. It's another account of creation, that makes sense. In fact, it is zooming in on day six is what we find here in chapter two. It is, as Derek Kidner calls it, a localized scene of the creation of the garden. So let's look at it again in verses five and six. Now, no, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. In a mist, mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Stop there. Now, the mist here is said to be or, or may have been a subterranean or an underground spring. Since there was no rain, how was, how was the ground being watered? Maybe through a spring. But, but what we see in verses 5 and 6 is a basic picture uh, of, of what the land was like before, before the garden. It was untended. It was untended. It required tending. And you know this, the, 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 the land requires tending. And it actually required tending before the fall as well. As we see here in its uncultivated state, that's what the description in verses 5 and 6. And in verse, the end of verse 5, it says, And there was no man to work the ground. So it is true that God made everything. We saw that in chapter 1. That God spoke, God made, God created. That's absolutely true. But he also made man to care for the land. Part of God's creation, part of God's cultivation of the earth is man, is the responsibility of man to care for the land. That's, that's why we're, we were made, to work the land. In its untended condition, it was, as we read in verse 5, it required tending, which brings us to verse 7. And the Lord God formed the man of, the, of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Now again, this is recounting day six. We should read this in correspondence with uh, the sixth day in chapter one, when we find that God created man in his image after his likeness. Male and female, he created them. We ought not to disconnect those things here in, verse, in chapter 2. But we also see some several things here in verse 7. The first is that the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. From the ground. So he formed, formed the man. He formed him how? Of dust from the ground. So we talked about creation being ex nihilo, um, which means out of nothing. Right? That's how God uh, created the world. But that's not how he created man. God didn't create man out of nothing. God created man out of the dust, out of the dust of the ground. Uh, one source says that Moses didn't know about the material composition of the human body or what elements were. But today we are able to identify the elements that make up the human body, which can all be found in the dust of the ground. 
When we die and decompose, we do exactly what the Bible teaches in Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. Our bodies return to what? Dust. Dust you were made, as dust you will return. So the forming here from the dust has the idea of a craftsman with his material. It, has the, it conveys the, the idea of intentionality and careful design. God created man carefully and intentionally. Now we are living in a time when God's forming is scorned and mocked. We make ourselves into sovereign beings authorized to usurp the creator to make ourselves whatever we choose or so we think. Actually, it is God who is the creator. It is God who intentionally and carefully not only designed Adam, not only designed Eve, but designed you. He designed me. He designed every human in the history of humanity. God's creative act in forming man is careful, intentional, and it is good. Psalm chapter 139 verse 14 says, I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. God formed man. But not only did he form him, but he breathed into him. God breathed into the nostrils of Adam and gave him the breath of life, it says. Or God blew, we could even, for a more poignant picture. This is a face-to-face or an, a personal, intimate act. Again, Derek Kidner says this is an act of giving and of self-giving by God. That he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. God formed and gave life. Now there's a prophet, um, Ezekiel, who tells of a a valley of what's called dry bones. This is in chapter 37. And Ezekiel writes this. And he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God. Come from the four winds, O breath. Breathe on the slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and the breath came into them and they lived and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. God breathed out and life came to be. Here in the garden, God breathed into the nostrils of man the breath of life and in so doing he became a living creature. That's what the rest of the verse says. And the man became a living creature. Now, both men and animals are referred to as living creatures. That's actually how it is referred to in chapter 1, verses 24. In, chapter, in verse 20, 20 and 24, uh, animals are called living creatures. So in, in some ways, the same designation is used. And yet, we see something very, very different when God makes man. Only to man did God breathe into him. Only, only then 
was, was man set apart from animals, making them, making man in his image, after his likeness. See, unlike animals, man became a living being or a living soul, an eternal being. Now, sometimes we may think about ourselves as, as a body that has a soul. Or as C.S. Lewis might say, you are a soul that has a body. Now for our humanity and our minds, these kind of designations or uh, these kind of distinctions or dichotomies or separations uh, might help us to, to see how there's a body and there is a soul. But what we need to understand is that in creation, when man was made, it was the breath of God which made him a living soul, which means the absence of the breath of God means that we are nothing. So however you split the hairs of a soul and a body and a spirit, are we trichotomists, are we dichotomists, are we holists, whatever the, the case is, the breath of God is what makes us into a living being, what gives us life. The absence of it is death. Well, having made man, now God placed him in the garden that he had planted. Look at verse 8. And God, the Lord God, planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant in the sight, in the sight and, the, and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, and there was where there is gold. And the gold that is in the land is good, and Delium and Onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is Gion. It is the, the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the, the Euphrates. Now here we see a, a description of the, the, the garden that God planted. Now the garden was in Eden in the east. Now, Eden is an unknown location to us. We don't know exactly where Eden is. It's, it is a mystery, as are the, the two, two of the four rivers. The Pishon and the Gion River, people do not know where those rivers are or what, where they were. There's obvious, obvious speculation and theories uh, based on some of the things that we do know. And fair enough. That has led some to believe that the garden was in the, the area of the Mesopotamia, uh, near the, the head of the Persian Gulf, which is in modern-day Iraq. What we can say, or what we can know, is that Eden was a geographical place. It was an actual place. And in Eden, there was a garden. So the garden wasn't actually Eden. Eden was a, a territory or a region. And in that region, the garden was there. Uh, Eden means a delight or a place of much water, as verses 10 through 14 just described for us with the four, the four rivers. Uh, one theologian says, the presence of a great river indicates the life-giving presence of God. And with this description of the garden, 
with these four rivers, rivers flowing all over, this is a, quite a description of the life-giving presence of God. It is an earthly paradise. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, the word that, that is translated for garden here is the word that we get our word paradise. And so when people refer to the garden as, as paradise, that, 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 that's why, at least in part why. In chapter 13, verse 10, it's called the garden of the Lord or garden of God. This was truly a paradise. You can imagine the beauty you can imagine the nature. You can imagine the animals. You can imagine man living with God in unity, dwelling in a place of righteousness. Kent Hughes writes that man lacked nothing. Adam lacked nothing. He was made in the image of God. God had kissed life into him. He was perfect. He was the human sovereign over creation. He had the blessing of God and the unparalleled presence of God. Adam and he quotes here uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, Adam speaks and walks with God as if they belong to one another. Hughes closes with, paradise it was. Quite a description. And we may think about this paradise and we may think about the, the physical beauties of the garden. And yet greater than those beauties was the beauty that, that man walked and talked with God, with the creator that he had fellowship, he had union with him. This was the garden. This was Adam's place. We also see here that the, the garden required a gardener. Look at verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to keep it, to work it and keep it. Adam was put into the garden, not just for, to, to relax, kick back and have a good time, it actually, he was actually put there to be a worker, to keep the garden, to tend to the garden, to cultivate the garden. Now we can know that God works out his plans through people. That's what we're seeing here in Genesis chapter 2. Could God have just cultivated the whole ground himself, cultivated the whole garden himself? Well, sure he could have. But that's not how God works. God works his plan through people. So how was the, the, the garden going to be cultivated? We already looked at it in verses 5 and 6. It was uncultivated. It was untended. Why? Because there was no man. So God creates man to do what? To cultivate the earth. To keep the garden. To work in the garden. Paul reminds Christians in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, that we are God's fellow workers. We are working with God. That we're carrying out the plans of God, the will of God. We have purpose and we have ten intention in our life. We also see here that work is God's plan. Some of us might look at work and say, work is a result of the curse. It is not a result of the curse. Unfruitful work is a result of the curse. Thorns and thistles are a result of the work. The, the fact that when you plant something, it doesn't always come up. That's a result of the curse. But work itself is not. Work itself is a good thing. Work itself was given by God in order for us to, to do what he wants us to do. In fact, we need to carry out the work that God has for us to do. That's part of God's will on this earth. God not only put man in the garden to work, he also gave him a command. Look at it in verses 16 and 17. And the Lord commanded the man saying, you shall Eat of every tree in the garden, 
But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now back in verse 9, we were introduced to two trees. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now that is not to say that there weren't other trees, but these were the two trees of significance. Significance to the unfolding redemptive narrative. Of significance to the destiny of mankind. Right, Kind of important part of what Genesis is getting at. God's command concerning the trees were, were two, in two ways. They were positive and they were negative. There, there's a permission and there's a prohibition. So we see a permission um, in that he says, you, surely, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. That's the permission. Eat of all the trees. Prohibition. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Uh, the tree of life conferred immortality while the tree of the knowledge of good and evil conferred what Warren Wearsby calls experiential knowledge of good and evil, but would bring about death. And so here's the test in the garden. Right? This is what God puts Adam and Eve in the garden, and he gives them a permission and a prohibition. And it's a test of what could be called, one writer calls, moral autonomy or moral independence. The point is, would Adam and Eve seek wisdom from God, or would they seek it out on their own? Would they seek it out on their own? Would they take their independence and live on their own terms? Would they say, as the old song says, I did it my way? This kind of independence is still a temptation today, isn't it? We often hear people say, I want to live life on my terms. No one's going to tell me how to live. That is an attack on God as sovereign. And we are enticed to believe that we can do it our way. We're enticed to believe that, that God isn't in charge. We're enticed to believe that the God isn't actually good. That God's keeping us something from us. Or even worse yet, that there is no God. And so we can live however we want to live. We are masters of our own ship. We can live according to our own truth. As we continue to read in Genesis, we're going to see how that worked out. Didn't work out so good. And it doesn't work out so good for you and me either. Because as Adam and Eve disobeyed, as Adam and Eve sought the moral autonomy, sought to find wisdom and delight outside of God, in their disobedience, sin and death entered into creation. There is a, a maxim that, that we should live by, and it's put very simply by Warren Wearsby, and it goes like this. Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings judgment. And you can take that one to the bank. Most of us have lived long enough to know that that's true, but it's true whether or not you believe it to be true. Blessing here does not mean the absence of adversity or suffering in your life. It doesn't mean that if you obey, everything good is going to come to you in your life. That's not the point. It does mean that there will be an absence of judgment. That is true. Unlike Adam, who refused to hear God's word, Jesus demonstrated to us what it looks like to live by God's word. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is being tempted by Satan. And in every temptation, he uses a scripture to respond and he uses a scripture from the Old Testament in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. And he says to, the, to, to Satan, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
And that's how Jesus lived. He lived according to God's word. God had spoken. And so that's what Jesus did. God had spoken to Adam and Eve. The question would be, would they listen? And as we will see in just a few weeks, they did not listen. But we must ask ourselves, God has spoken to us in his word as well. And will we listen? It might be easy to to point out the the failure of Adam and Eve. And say you had one prohibition. You had one prohibition and you you couldn't not do that one thing. Like we got a lot of prohibitions. You got a lot, even today as you woke up, you, you, you abided by several prohibitions already today. One prohibition and they, they didn't do it. But as, as hard as we might be on them, how often have we transgressed God's words too? How often have we gone against what we know to be true? How often have we questioned whether or not God is good? How often have we questioned whether or not there is good outside of God's word? That was the temptation for Eve and for Adam, and it's the temptation for you and for me. Are we willing to live by God's words, or are we willing to live or want to live by our own wisdom? Genesis here introduces us to the first man, who we come to know as Adam, who, as we will see, failed miserably the tests. He disobeyed God and brought upon himself and humanity death. That's some pretty bad news. But the good news is that thousands of years later, the last Adam came. That's Jesus. Who in place of disobedience brought perfect obedience. In the place of condemnation brought justification. In the place of sin brought righteousness. In the place of judgment brought blessing. In the place of death brought life. In Genesis 2, God planted the first garden. It was a beautiful paradise where righteousness and peace dwelt. And yet, not very far into the scriptures, we find that that righteousness and that peace or that shalom was lost. It was ruined by the fall. But again, as we read our Bible in Revelation chapter 20, verse 22, we hear of another garden, the last garden, that the garden city, a place of paradise where the waters of life flow from the throne of God, where the river runs beside the tree of life, where righteousness and peace dwell once again, peace, the peace of God in the absence of sin. This is the restoration, we could say, of the garden. It is because of sin that we have been cast out of the garden out of paradise, out of the presence of God, and yet Christ came, he lived and he died to make a way back to God for you and me, a way back to paradise. And how did he do that? He did it through another garden and another tree. In, Romans, in Luke chapter 22, on the night that Jesus would be betrayed, he prayed in the garden of Gethsemane. And in that garden, he yielded himself to God. In that garden, he surrendered himself to God's word and God's will. And he went out to give his life on another tree, the cross of Calvary, in order to pay for our sins, in order that we could be reconciled to God, in order that we could be made at peace with God, in order that we could be brought into fellowship and unity with God again. And how? Through his death and our repentance and faith in him. It was on the cross It was through the body and the blood of Jesus that we see God's love for the world. 
that we see his will to overcome sin and redeem all of creation. This morning, as we observe the Lord's table, I invite you, if you know Jesus, to, to partake with us, to rejoice in the death of Jesus, the redemption of Jesus, the forgiveness of Jesus for us, being reconciled to himself. But, and listen, please, if you do not know Jesus as your Savior this morning, let, let the plates pass by you today. Don't take of these symbols that, that merely represent the body and the blood of Jesus. Instead, receive Jesus himself. Instead, of through, through, instead, through repentance and faith, come to God, admitting you're a sinner, and by faith alone, asking him to save you from your sin. Receive Jesus. Receive his forgiveness. Receive eternal life. Receive the peace and unity of Christ that we can have then with the Father. That is for all who would repent and believe.